the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. edition. See, I don't even know what day it is. This is the word to stand up for life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. Anything and everything that's on your heart, I'll do the best I can to answer those questions. All you need to do is call us 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can send questions in by email, by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send them to us that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to do so is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the call now banner at the top of your screen, and then you can use the hands-free feature of your car and talk to me and drive safely at the same time. Our main number, one more time, is 340-9585. Paula, I have a message for you. Uh, All the kids that were in there said, tell Mama Paula we love her. So I delivered the message that I promised to deliver. Let me get right to questions while we await your phone calls. Um, Our first question comes from our email inbox from AA. AA, it's good to hear from you. I haven't heard from you for a while. He says, Pastor, on 2 Thessalonians 3.10 has a fairly clear statement concerning work. It says, anyone who doesn't work should not eat. Here's my question. How does one reconcile this verse with respect to all the verses which tell believers to be generous to all? even if they panhandle in parking lots, street corners, uh, skimming the government, etc. I think there's two completely different contexts. And I think uh, one of the problems of divorcing the context from the Scripture, just taking Scripture and applying it as a blanket to all situations, is that we miss the intent. Um, Paul is talking to the church in Thessalonica, and in that passage of Scripture, he's warning against idleness, against laziness um, in the first century church, as, as is the case 2,000 years later. Uh, there's always people in a big body of believers who are trying to freeload off the others. And Paul is addressing that issue. And he says, look, if he doesn't work, then he should need. In other words, he or she has to deal with the consequences of their laziness. Let God have his way in their hearts instead of just jumping uh, to, to their help because we feel sorry for them. Um, you know, we Christians can do a lot of things out of guilt that have nothing to do with God. Now, that does not relieve us of the responsibility to be generous to people who really need help. Um, a generous man himself will be blessed by God. Uh, you know, when you're generous, God is going to be generous to you. And we need, without judging people all the time, we need to look at people who really need help 
and then be generous to them. Let me give just a couple of examples. Uh, single moms. Um, you know, single moms in our culture, I think they're, they're equivalent, and, and their children are the equivalent of the widows and orphans of the first century uh, and the Old Testament, uh, all the way back into the Old Testament. And, and when you look at a single mom, the chances are that mom needs help. And so our job is to be generous and help whenever we can. Now, if there is a single mom who is able to work and simply doesn't want to, then there's another issue altogether. So, yes, we're supposed to be personally and individually responsible to support ourselves. But when those occasions arise where somebody legitimately cannot do that or they just are doing the best they can but they still need help, we need to be generous. You know, AA uh, coming up in just a couple of weeks, actually three weeks I think now, um, we uh, we have our, I, I don't know, our 20th or 21st or 2nd, I don't know, the, the, our annual Joy of Jesus down at Travis Park. It's going to be October the 19th, um, a Saturday from 11 until 3. Um, and we minister in large part to the homeless population down there. Not only the homeless, but, but in large part, they're the ones who need it. That's why we give them food. That's why we are going to have uh, enough clothes that look like they could go to a Walmart, and, and that's how many clothes we have. Uh, we're going to give away free bikes. We're going to give away um, uh, free medical care. Our entire medical staff will be there. Um, we're we're going to do everything from haircuts to makeovers to um, massages, um, uh, all kinds of things. And it's what we've been doing for all of these years. And we're doing it simply because the Lord's heart towards everyone is generous. We want to give people help. We don't want to kick them while they're down. What we'd rather do is give them a hand up. And every year we see a lot of the same people. Now, unfortunately, the homeless population is growing in our city, and so there will always be a lot of new people. Um, but to, to just minister to them, no agenda. They're not going to give anything to our church. Uh, they're not going to walk the 22 miles from downtown to our church to, to make our church larger. There's nothing that we get except the opportunity once a year to show people the generous heart of God. And he loves them, and in their down-and-out state, um, we are his light. And so generosity ought to be the hallmark of a Christian. So, A, those two things are different. One is personal responsibility to to, uh, support your family. The other is the personal responsibility to be generous whenever the opportunity uh, presents itself. I think it's a very, very important thing. If you want to see generosity and people being blessed, um, then make plans to come down to Travis Park, downtown San Antonio, on October the 19th, and you'll see not only a whole bunch of generous people from our church, but you'll see the blessings that occur. And, And in many cases, the conversions to Christ that occur simply as a result of that generosity. Good question, A.A., and it's good to hear from you again. Let's go to line one, San Antonio. Armando is holding. Armando, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor. How you doing? God bless you. Thank uh, you. I'm doing say, well. Man, I enjoy I love the radio show. You know, it's awesome uh, learning material, and uh, I have, uh, it's a pleasure you know, and an honor to, to be a part of that, and uh, just thank you. Um, and I have a quick question, or more, okay. I'm just uh, curious to see how you would respond. Uh, how would you respond to someone who tells a Christ follower um, that they cannot uh, that they cannot be a CHL holder because of uh, live by the sword, die by the sword? You know, as of Matthew 26:52, and I'm sure they're taking that out of context. But I just uh, was curious to see how you would respond to that. Okay, Armando, what, what, did you say CHL? Is that a concede hand, yes, handgun license? Yeah, okay. concede handgun license, yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, Armando, thank you for, for the kind thoughts, and I appreciate the fact that you tune in uh, daily as well. Uh, truthfully, the, the one has nothing to do with the other. Um, um, uh, Christians, are, are we are free to exercise our rights 
given to us in this country. One of those rights is to carry a weapon, and if you obey the rules, if you are, are, um, are doing everything within the confines of the law, then we are entitled to, uh, to carry a, a concealed handgun if, in fact, that's what we want to do. It's not a statement on our faith being weak. It's not a statement on our, our, uh, our, our, our wanting to be tough guys. It, it's simply um, a right that we have that we're free to exercise. And people who are loudly anti-gun... Um, you know, they don't have any more right to impose uh, on you or on me. Now, I'm not a gun person. I'm, I'm, I'm visually impaired, so that would be a bad combination. But we have a bunch of cops uh, that come to our church, and they're always carrying. Um, there are certainly other people who are concealed carry weapons, uh, and, and that's, that's okay. They would, they would operate responsibly. In fact, if people are going to carry guns, um, my desire would be, Armando, that they are born-again believers uh, who understand the seriousness of, of their choice and would be judicious in the exercise uh, should it ever be required to, to, to discharge that firearm. So I, I don't think it's, it's, it's a, a problem at all, biblically, uh, doctrinally, or any other way. The one thing I do want to say about, about Jesus telling him to go buy a sword, telling his disciples at the end, uh, he wasn't telling him, and I've heard gun proponents say, well, Jesus told us to go out and get guns. No, he wasn't. He was telling his disciples, giving them a very important message. He said, you know, as long as I've been here, I've taken care of you. But now I'm not going to be here anymore, so go get a sword. What he was saying is things are going to be really hard now, and you need to be prepared. And um, probably the only connection we can make between that and a concealed handgun license is that uh, would be if we were preparing ourselves for some tragedy that would come along. But again, I don't see any problem with with guns uh, as long as they're done legally and they're exercised judiciously, I think. Thank you very, very much. It was Matthew 26, I think, that Armando was referring to. Armando, thanks very much for the kind words. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox, this one from Caleb. He says, does prophecy exist in any form today? Uh, In the Old Testament, some singers were described as prophesying. What do you think that means? Um, Caleb, in the Old Testament, let me get with that one first. Um, you know, uh, the Psalms were set to music. Um, certainly not music like we would consider worship music today, uh, but but uh, the, the Hallel Psalms, um, the Ascension Psalms, um, but but a lot of the lyrics um, we have we have. I'll give you an example. We have a song, the Song of Solomon. Solomon wrote over a thousand songs, and this is one that God wrote. So we know that the Song of Songs is prophetic and has a beautiful prophetic application. So in some of the Psalms, which were simply songs, um, we know that there was a lot of prophesying, including prophesying specifically about the death uh, and the type of death and the suffering of Jesus Christ. So um, I, 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 those were literally songs. The Bible calls them uh, prophecy. It means that the, song, the words of those songs would then come true as they were prophesied. Now, does prophecy exist in any form today? The answer to that question is yes, Caleb. Uh, the gift of prophecy from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and then the exercise of that gift in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, the gift of prophecy is very much in use today. Uh, having the gift of prophecy does not make one a prophet. It's very different than the prophetic statements of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, the Old Testament prophet uh, Isaiah. We're studying Isaiah now on Wednesday nights. Um, I'm going to be in again in Isaiah 53 uh, tomorrow night, uh, and and we know how prophetic that was. That's the prophet Isaiah seeing a vision and writing it down, so that we have a, a clear view of of something that's going to happen in the future. Uh, the prophecy that exists today, the gift is not like the foretelling of the future. 
The gift of prophecy today is the fourth telling of God's word. If that distinction wasn't clear on the over the microphone, uh, four f o e r telling and fourth f o r t h telling are two completely different things. Um, the gift of prophecy is for edifying and strengthening the body. It's not to go up to somebody and say, "Hey, God gave me a word for you." Uh, that kind of prophecy doesn't exist. But the idea that we can encourage and edify one another with a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge, um, um, those are things that that are very much active in the church today. And I think underutilized, Caleb. Um, I think underutilized. I think that gift of prophecy is a wonderful, wonderful gift, and we all ought to seek it more. Additionally, because it's fourth F-O-R-T-H telling, um, I utilize the gift of prophecy when I'm teaching. Now, I'm teaching the Word. The Holy Spirit is interpreting that Word on an individual basis for people uh, as He's speaking to them through the living, active Word. So that is a form of prophecy. It's just the fourth telling of God's Word. Um, that gift still exists. The office of prophet, Caleb, does not. So I hope that makes sense to you and clears it up. It's a very important distinction for all of you. Anybody that comes and tells you, God told me something about you or God has a word for you, be very, very skeptical of that. Um, If you're in your word, if you're seeking the heart of God, uh, he knows how to get a hold of you and you don't need him to tell somebody else. And personally, I've seen, Caleb, a lot of damage done uh, over the years by people who claim that they were being prophets of God. Uh, prophets, of course, do not exist. That was uh, a foundational office. The church is being built on that foundation, the prophets and the apostles, Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone, the foundation already laid. And so now that we have the Word of God, um, we know everything we need to know. So it's not necessary any longer for a prophet to come up and give you some sort of an interpretation or to give you uh, some sort of direction for your life. Good question. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Kelly from our mobile app. Um, Pastor Ron, what is the Latin Vulgate Bible? Uh, where does that originate from, and do we still use it? Uh, Kelly, it's certainly still available. The Latin Vulgate um, is a a very, very uh, dependable translation of the Bible. Of course, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church used it throughout the centuries. Uh, in, in in effect, trying to discourage people from reading the Bible um, for themselves, uh, but it is a um, a very dependable translation. Um, it it's been circulating uh, for uh, a long time. I don't I don't off the top of my head know uh, when it was introduced, uh, but it's uh, it's it's easy to find that. You can Google Latin Vulgate Bible um, dating. And you'll get the date, um, but uh, it, it is uh, a very dependable translation of the Bible. Uh, the problem is most of us don't speak Latin, and thank the Lord that um, our Bibles have been translated into English so that we can understand them. Good questions. Go to my next question. This one is from Jason. He says, is there going to be a second chance to be saved after we die? No, the, the uh, Hebrews 9.27 says, as clearly as it can be stated that it is appointed unto man once to die and then face judgment. So we only get one chance at salvation. We have to make the choice in this life where we're going to spend the next life. Now remember, the next life is going to last a lot longer, forever and ever and ever. And we have to choose um, whether we're going to spend forever with Jesus or we're going to spend forever separated from Jesus. So no second chance. There's no such thing as purgatory. Nobody can pray you out. Once we take our last breath in this body, then um, um, 
our eternal destination is set and it cannot be changed. We're either going to be with the Lord or we're not going to be with the Lord. So Jason, if you're holding on to hope that there's a second chance and you can sort of sin now and get saved later, you can't. You can't. Jennifer asks a difficult question. Pastor Ron, how should Christians react to the climate change hysteria and how it's affecting children? Uh, Obviously, Jennifer, this question is stimulated by uh, the media, all the news that is on the the young 16-year-old who testified before Congress and really chewed everybody up. Uh, I have very strong feelings on this, Jennifer, and and I'm going to be just as direct as I possibly can. I like that you use the word hysteria because um, hysteria is an extreme, and extremes are not from God. We Christians know that Jesus is going to come back to this earth. We know he's going to come back and set his feet on the Mount of Olives, literally in the holy city of Jerusalem. And um, if all of these alarmists, these hysterical people are right, then there's not going to be an earth for him to come back to. We've got to choose who we're going to believe. Uh, This is something that is an absolute tragedy in our culture. We're teaching our children to be terrified. You know, I grew up in a time when we were all afraid of being attacked by nuclear missiles. And we used to have um, uh, nuclear missile drills where uh, we'd all get under our little tiny desk like that was going to help us if a nuclear bomb hit. Uh, and, and, and I was afraid. Not during the drill, but I'd go home sometimes at night and get in bed and say, what if it happens? What if I was afraid. That's nothing compared to this area that's being spread in our schools, infecting our children's minds, teaching them to live in fear. What I went through is nothing like what kids are going through today. And they are brainwashed, Jennifer. So uh, I think we should teach our children not to be afraid. Uh, I, I think we should act rationally, and I think we should act in faith. If Jesus is who he said he was, he's coming back, and the earth is going to be here when he does. By the way, our Bible says that Jesus is the one who holds all that he created in his hands. Everything. So, hope that helps, Jennifer. Let's go to line one and talk with Greg calling from San Antonio. Greg, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Love to, love to hear you. Hey, uh, just got a question you. about... Uh, uh, I guess early on, it seemed like you got plugged into the Calvary uh, Church. I don't know what it is. Maybe kind of elaborate on what it is. Is it like a church system or denomination? Uh, and what made you stay with Calvary versus you know going non-denominational or Baptist or whatever? Okay. I can do that, Greg. Thank you. Um, Calvary Chapel, first of all, is not a denomination. Uh, We are a group of churches affiliated with one another. Uh, We are affiliated around a a similar set of doctrines and beliefs. Um, uh, Our founding pastor, Chuck Smith, liked the fact that that, uh, somebody could go into a Calvary Chapel, whether it was in California, New York, or anywhere in between, or all over the world. We've got actually Calvary Chapels all over the world. And expect the same thing. Consistent doctrine, consistent Bible teaching, consistent worship. Um, it, it shouldn't matter. Now, every church has different styles and different personalities, but the, 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 the general sense is, and here's what he used to say. He said, you know, when you go to a McDonald's, you expect to get a hamburger. And it's going to taste like a McDonald's hamburger. He wanted Calvary Chapels uh, to meet those expectations. Uh, for me, Greg, I, I wasn't raised in church, and I'm a late-in-life Christian. I got saved just before my 40th birthday. So uh, I didn't know anything about Calvary Chapel. I lived right in the heart of where Calvary Chapel was flourishing, and I'm the guy that never heard of Chuck Smith. So um, um, when I got saved, all I wanted to do was be around other believers. I wanted to be in church. I wanted to be where the Bible was open. And I remember um, um, being so zealous that I wanted to go. We would go sometimes two and three times a day get up early, go to a first service somewhere, and then find another service a little late in the morning, and we go for an evening service on Sundays, Paul and I would. 
And uh, one evening we stumbled into Calvary Chapel of Ontario then. It's now called Calvary Chapel of the Chino Valley. Uh, the pastor there who's now a friend of mine, his name is David Rosales. Um, he taught, and I didn't like him at first because he was so harsh, uh, but, but there was a, an authority that he taught with. And he simply went verse by verse through the Bible, which is one of our Calvary Chapel distinctives. And as he would go verse by verse through the Bible, I marveled that, hey, I understand this. This means something to me. This is something I can use when I leave here today. And when I did that, um, I, I, I just I just felt at home. So when I started, I was called to be a pastor. When I started looking for Bible colleges, my first thought was, let's see if Calvary Chapel has one, and they and they have been. Calvary Chapel allows me the freedom to 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 run our church the way we want to run it. Um, but again, we are affiliated with a great group of of brothers all over the world. Uh, who are like-minded and like-hearted. And that's why Calvary Chapel was uh, so valuable to me. I'm going to do one more thing about this, Greg, on the other side of the break. So we have 30 minutes left in the Wednesday, or the Tuesday. Boy, I don't know why I'm on Wednesday. The Tuesday edition of the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Greg, one more thing about um, Calvary Chapel and why did we stick with it? You know, um, we believe that churches are to be pastor-led. Now, that doesn't mean pastors are dictators. It doesn't mean that uh, we can do whatever we want and we're not accountable to anybody. But what it means is that God, if you go through the Bible, God always gives a vision or direction to a man, and then that man obeys, and then there are others who follow him along in that vision. And, you know, there just isn't many church groups uh, independent churches you know can do what they want but there just aren't many church groups that would give us the freedom to do what God has asked us to do um, I can have a free school nobody else does no other Calvary Chapel does but I can have a free school I can have a doctor's office a free doctor's office uh, we can have a, a, a home for for women who are struggling or in danger. We can do that. We can do it all for free. There's nobody from Calvary Chapel who's going to come and say, oh, that doesn't make sense. Why are you doing that? Uh, so we've got the freedom to do what God has told us to do. And one of the things Pastor Chuck always taught us was that we need to be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. And I think that's sadly missing in a lot of churches. Now, we go in and people get goosebumps and, and we have wild worship and those kind of things. That's not being led by the Spirit. But here's what I think so, so strongly, Greg, that if pastors would seek the Lord for direction for that particular church, there would be a whole lot of churches doing unusual things. I think God wants to do so much more for us than we, than we can imagine. And yet we, too often, we just do what everybody else is doing. And it's been sort of difficult to, to understand, you know, with the blessings that we've had with the stuff God's asked us to do. Why aren't more people saying, okay, Lord, what do you want to do? Surely we can't be the only church that does things for free. I think it's really important that we follow the leading of the Lord. Calvary Chapel has been sort of a compass point for me. And, um, you know, Calvary Chapel may change, but I won't. We're going to keep doing the same thing that we've always been doing uh, because that's what God has asked us to do. Greg, thank you. That's a good question, and I appreciate your the, the thought behind it. Here's a question from William. Uh, William says, Pastor Ron, how can someone be a Christian and not, and I, I said it like that because not is capitalized, and not support President Trump? 
Um, William, there are so many reasons. I can't even I can't even begin to number the reasons somebody could be a Christian and not support Donald Trump. Uh, I'm a conservative guy, and I'm I'm happy that he's in the office rather than the person that he ran against. But I think as Christians, if we're consistent in our faith, we've got to be men and women who stand for righteousness, stand for Jesus. And the truth is, this president, again, I've already said I'm glad he's conservative and I'm, I'm grateful for some of the really good things he's done. But, but there's nothing Christian about what he's done. There's nothing Christian about the way he conducts his life. And we Christians shouldn't support those things. Even if you're the biggest Trump supporter politically, as a believer, William, when he lies, when he exaggerates, when he is mean, when he is unkind, when he's duplicitous, we should be the ones who call him out on that. And instead, we just think, no, you can't criticize him because he's the president. And you know what? We're called to stand in righteousness. We're not called to stand in a Republican bathrobe. And the truth is, there's a lot of born-again believers who are Democrats, I think misled by many things, most notably the abortion issue. Uh, But there are many others, the constant push to free people to sin instead of freeing them from sin. By that, I mean legalizing gay marriage, saying it's okay, legalizing, um, uh, affirming transgender processes, um, telling people that what they want to do, feel free to be them. When Jesus died to help us to be free from who we are so that we can be more like him. So I think there's all kinds of problems on the other side, many, many more problems than on the Republican side. However, for us to conflate Christianity and right-wing politics is a grave error. And I think, William, what we do is we um, um, really make fools of ourselves. Um, If Donald Trump runs again against somebody who is um, pro-abortion, if he runs against somebody who is an alarmist for climate change, and it appears that all of his candidates, uh, opposing candidates on the Democratic side, are that and much, much more, uh, I'll vote for Trump again. However, I will never approve of or overlook the fact that he simply doesn't tell the truth too often, that he's simply unkind. And for somebody to say, but yeah, he's a Christian, he's got Christian preachers who support him. You're not a Christian because you say you are. You're a Christian because you've met Jesus. And when you meet Jesus, William, you change. So I hope that answers your question. Please don't let politics confuse you. There's nobody on either side who's truly representing Jesus. That's our job in this world. 340-9585. Here's a question from Brian. He says, do the epistles have less authority than the gospels? And this is what Jesus says more important than what other Bible authors say. Uh, Brian, the answer is no, they don't have less authority. And no, what Jesus says isn't more important than what the other Bible authors say, meaning the, the words in red in your Bible. They carry no more weight and no more authority. You see, all of the words were written by Jesus. All of them. And without the epistles, we would be lost. Can you imagine if we only had the Gospels? If all we had were the Gospel accounts, we wouldn't know how to go live our lives. We wouldn't know how to deal with issues. We wouldn't know what constitutes pursuing holiness and what constitutes pursuing sin. So we need the epistles. That's why Jesus said to his disciples who would be apostles just as he was getting ready to leave them, 
He said, I have more to tell you, much more than you can bear now. But that will happen when the Holy Spirit comes. And when the day the church was born, the Spirit made his entrance, the Bible began to be written, and we have the full counsel of God. We wouldn't have that if all we had was the gospel accounts. And while it sounds reasonable to say, well, Jesus is God, so his words in red are more authoritative, it's to miss the point that all of the words in your Bible are written by him. The breath of God pushing the pens of men. So all scripture is equally authoritative, equally inspired, and is to be obeyed equally. So very, very important. Hope that answers your question, Brian. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Harold calling from San Antonio on line one. Harold, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Sure. Hi, Pastor Ryan. It's, it's uh, Harold. I'm, I'm not sure if I have a question. or Sometimes it's nice to just talk to someone about the Bible, you know. But uh, <laughs> I have been... <laughs> it's true. I, uh-huh. I have been reading a little bit uh, in Hebrews more than I have in my whole life. And, you know, it's a small book. There, there's a lot going on there, and one of my understandings of it, I guess I do have a question, um, uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6 in particularly, but after that verse is read, it, it seems, you know, because I've read a lot of things about it, and people seem to think that because of that verse that one would lose their salvation. I don't believe in that type of thing at all. And then further on, maybe... Uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, 13, I'm trying to remember, I have my Bible in my backpack, but, so it just seems like the book of Hebrews is for the people, or for people, I don't know if it was back then, well, it works today, that were Christians, you know, dedicated their life to Christianity, Jesus Christ, and, and were saved, and know they were, and then they get persecuted, uh, or they get picked on, and then they change their mind, or they, they don't change their mind, but they fall away, and it seems like the book of Hebrews, you know, there's verses there to encourage you that other people, maybe back then, you know, in the ancient times, were going through the same thing. I, you know, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. Okay, um, I can do that, Harold. Not too much, but... Nope, and, and I agree with you completely. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I, I have... Uh, um, um, always viewed Hebrews from from uh, my time as a very early Christian. It's one of the most encouraging books. It's the most Jewish of the epistles, um, and yet it's it's written to encourage a bunch, of, a bunch of beleaguered Christians who have been struggling over a long period of time. We're actually studying the book of Hebrews on Friday nights here, Harold, and um, it is a constant source of encouragement. Now, there's six warnings in the book of Hebrews. Uh, and he's warning people. And this is why we have to really pay attention to the context, the purpose of the book, and focus in not on just one verse, but focus instead on what the author is saying and why he's saying it. Now, in the book of Hebrews, if you read through the entire book, what you find out is this is a story of a church that started out so strong. These are Jewish converts to Christianity. Now, remember, in the first century, it was dangerous for Jews to convert to Christianity. Their families would disown them. They'd be on their own. It was a really, really, really difficult life. And at the beginning, these Jewish converts to Christ were gung-ho. You know, it was, uh, Paul says, you eagerly accepted the confiscation. I think Paul is the author. You eagerly accepted the confiscation of your property. In other words, they understood they were being persecuted. They are being persecuted for Christ. Jesus said, if you're persecuted for my sake, you are blessed. He didn't say we feel blessed. He said, we are blessed. And these young Christians, they got it. But you see, for them, the persecution didn't stop. And over a period of time, and and the the churches uh, that are being um, um, written to in the book of Hebrews... Um, have been going now for like 20 plus years. Some will say as many as 30 years. And they're tired of the persecution. I mean, that's just normal. That's the the, 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 the human nature. 
Uh, We want the battles to stop. We want a time of peace and a time of rest. And these Christians were being given the opportunity to escape persecution. Imagine somebody comes and says, I'll stop persecuting you. We'll give you all your stuff back. You can live in peace. Just renounce Christ and return to Judaism. And so the, the warnings in the book are warning against that very thing. And in Hebrews 6, I get questions about it all the time. Um, when it says it's impossible for those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. And people read that, and if you don't understand the context of the book, you read that and say, see, if I fall away, I can't be saved again. But we know that can't be true. We know it can't be true because Peter disowned God. and Not only was he restored by Jesus personally, but he became sort of the, the de facto leader of the apostles in the early church. So you have to start maybe what it can't mean. It can't mean that if we sin that we're lost. That can't be what it means because that contradicts the rest of our New Testament scriptures. So what Paul is saying to these beleaguered converts getting tired of being persecuted what he's saying is simply this look if you go back to being a Jew you go back to the Jewish sacrificial system by the way Hebrews was written before 70 AD we know that because they were still talking about the sacrifices you go back to the sacrificial system when the blood of bulls and goats and rams can't cover up sin what are you going to do if you turn from Jesus who died for our sins what are you going to do about your sin I'm saying if you turn from this back to Judaism, then there's no way back. There's no sacrifice left for sins. And even in this chapter, Hebrews 6, going down to verse 9, Paul lets us know he's trying to encourage him. He says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. So I'm with you, Harold. Hebrews is, to me, I think, the most eternally secure book that we have in our New Testament. And, of course, we know in the end of the book that his hopes for better things, things that accompany salvation, were true. So thank you, Harold. That is a great question. I love the book of Hebrews. We are in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, I got two more studies in the Hall of Fame of Faith, and then we're going to be going to be out of that. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions from Kelly. Uh, Kelly, to answer your question, Vulgate, uh, my research staff did a, a, some work during the break. Uh, it's 4th century Bible. Um, Jerome uh, was the author uh, circa 382 uh, B.C. <clears throat> AD. Or A.D., I'm sorry. It um, became the Catholic Church's Bible by the 16th century, still being used fundamentally in the Latin Church to this day. So thank you very, very much. Thanks for my research. And Kelly, I hope that answers your question. Here is another question. This one is from Brandon. If God is spirit, how was he walking in the garden with Adam? Boy, there's a good question. Two things. One, it was Jesus. Brandon, every time in the Old Testament somebody sees God or experiences God in the physical realm, it's Jesus. The Father is spirit, Jesus said. He lives in unapproachable light. Um, uh, every time somebody saw God in the Old Testament, it was Jesus. Pre-incarnate appearance is a great book, by the way, called The Christ Before the Manger, written by Ron Rhodes. Uh, I recommend it highly. Um, and, and it was Jesus. So it would have been Jesus who was walking with him in the garden. Now, Jesus had been revealed in the fullness of his sonship, obviously, at the very beginning. So um, we know that as we study through the rest of our Bibles. So uh, you're true. The Father is spirit. 
Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, But every time a human has had an interaction physically with God, it's Jesus. So that's how he was walking in the garden with Adam. The second thing I want to say about that, Brandon, is I think about what that must have been like all the time. You know, when Adam and Eve fell, and God, Adam, Adam, where art thou, Adam? He says, oh, I'm over here hiding because I found out I was naked and now I'm ashamed. Um, imagine the sense of loss at that moment to Adam's soul. Clothed in God's glory before the fall and suddenly able to see his own nakedness and be ashamed, he wouldn't even know how to deal with the emotion of shame. Think how deeply he and Eve would have regretted the choice they made. How afraid they would be, terrified. God said, when you eat it, you will surely die. And certainly they did. They died spiritually and began the process of dying physically. But I also think, Brandon, after having been cast out of the garden, um, an angel with a cherub with a flaming sword guarding the tree of life, it is my personal belief that we have no biblical source for this. But I imagine that Adam and Eve would have brought their kids, Cain and Abel, back to the edge of the garden as often as they could. Just to tell the story. You know, fathers are supposed to tell their sons. They would have told the story. Boys, this is where we used to live, and it was so great. I could hear the voice of God, and and, and he would walk with me and talk with me. And because your mom and dad sinned, we blew it. Imagine the sense of regret. What a lesson it should have been for Cain and Abel. We know it only worked for one of them. But what a lesson it would be. I also think, Brandon, that if more moms and dads would sit down with their kids on a consistent basis and share with them the cost of sin. I used to have such a great relationship with God and then I blew it by sin and I repented and God accepted me back. Imagine how the dynamic in this world would change if only parents would take time with their kids to, figuratively speaking, share what it was like to walk in the cool of the garden with God. Here is a question from Nate. We've got uh, just a little over four minutes left in the program. Uh, Pastor Ron, how is it just for God to send someone to hell forever when he or she has only lived for 70 or 80 years in sin? Doesn't that seem unfair to you? Nate, um, it only seems unfair if you are not aware of the character and the nature of God, if you don't know who he is. Now, here's the reality, and I think we, we sometimes, and by the way, this is a universalist argument. It says, well, maybe there's going to be punishment, but, but uh, there's going to be universal rec- reconciliation in the end. Um, what, what they fail to understand is that we're creating the image of God. And in part, that means that we're going to be eternal. The moment we take breath in this world, we're going to live somewhere forever. And life is the time when we have to make the choice where we're going to spend eternity. Now we make the choice to spend eternity with God by getting saved, by becoming a born-again believer. But if we don't make that choice, since Jesus is the only sacrifice for sins, then we have to make the choice through our sin that we're going to live separated from God forever. And forever means exactly that, forever and ever and ever. So it's not like somebody who's lived for 70 or 80 years in sin and God's saying, okay, your sins are so bad that they deserve punishment. What he's saying is, look, I want to live with you, but I can't because I can't be in the presence of sin. And you rejected the remedy for sin, the, the, the blood of my son. And so the, the, the thing that's most difficult for us to understand is that God would take any of us to heaven, but because of Jesus, because of what he's done, we can make the choice to go to heaven and spend forever. 
truth is we all deserve hell. Jesus rescues us from hell. But if we don't choose Jesus, then we're going to spend forever separated from God. We call that hell. So that's as just as it gets. Is it just? Do you think you deserve a second chance? No, God says you're going to live somewhere forever. We have to make the choice where we're going to spend forever. And that God gives us the opportunity to make that choice is just nothing but grace. God's wonderful grace. So, Nate, I hope that answers your question. Uh, Here's the last question of the day. Jeff wants to know, is N.T. Wright solid? Uh, Where might his doctrinal positions be faulty? Um, N.T. Wright is sort of the new darling of the of sort of the the, the left, uh, as it would relate to to a conservative or or more liberal view of Christianity. He is an Episcopal pastor. Um, the Episcopal Church has long ago thrown away the Word of God. Uh, my biggest problem with N.T. Wright, while he's really smart and he's a great communicator, uh, he does not believe in penal substitutionary atonement. Um, Jesus did not take the punishment that we deserved. Um, uh, that's an outdated view, according to N.T. Wright. Uh, and while he's intelligent and can persuade people, um, it flies in the face of the prophecies made about Jesus. In particular, the price of our peace was placed upon him in Isaiah chapter 53. So I would stay away from N.T. Wright uh, unless you're really doctrinally solid and you can take some of the good stuff and spit out the rest of it. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. It's been a good program. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I'll be back tomorrow on AM 630, The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.